ages three-year-old to second grade, you're dismissed to children's church. Now, it shouldn't surprise anyone that I'm going to bring genealogy in this sermon today. So, here it is. Most of you know I love genealogy. Because of that, I'm fascinated with where names come from, both family names and place names. So, if you didn't know, my name is Mark, and it's with a C, and I was named for the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. My first middle name is Joseph, and I was named after my grandfather on my mother's side. My second middle name is Jerome. If you didn't know, I have two middle names. And um, I was named for my father's boss at the time that I was born. My mother's first name is Elizabeth. She was named after her mother, whose middle name was Elizabeth. I'm not totally positive where my dad got his first name, Philip, but his great-grandfather on his mother's side was also named Philip. I'm also fascinated with where names of places come from. So I grew up in a, and I went to school at a place called Temple Hills, Maryland, which is named for a 19th century doctor named Edward Temple. And when I met my wife, Judy, I was living in Fort Washington, Maryland. As you could guess, the fort was named after George Washington. Uh, and the fort was on the Potomac River. It was the only fort protecting Washington, D.C. at the time of the War of 1812. So do you guys know where we got the term America? Anybody? The term America came from a man named Amerigo Vespucci. He was an Italian explorer who set forth the then-revolutionary concept that the lands that Christopher Columbus sailed to in 1492 were not part of the West Indies, but was a separate continent. I also looked up some names where we got the, name, the, the thing where we got states. So Oregon comes from the Portuguese word for cascades, because there's a lot of waterfalls there. Texas comes from the Caddo Indian word for friends or allies. Virginia is named for England's Queen Elizabeth I, who was called the Virgin Queen. One of the more fascinating ones I came across was Idaho. In the mid-1800s, a mining lobbyist, George M. Willing, presented the name Idaho to Congress for a new territory around Pikes Peak. He claimed that it was a Native American Shoshone phrase, meaning gem of the mountains. But in reality, he made it up. And by the time the deception was discovered, the name Idaho was already in common use. Now, you all know where the state of Pennsylvania gets their, its name, right? In 1681, King Charles II granted a land charter to William Penn to repay a debt owed to his father, Admiral William Penn. William Penn, the son, wanted to name it New Wales, but there were some objections to that. The, um, then he then tried to change it to Sylvania, which means forest or woods. But the king named it Pennsylvania, literally meaning Penn's Woods, in honor of Admiral Penn, the father. William Penn was embarrassed at the name, fearing that people would think that he had named it after himself, but the king would not change or rename the grant. Now, our church sits in Adams County, and you probably know that it's named after President John Adams. Gettysburg was named after James Getty. York Springs was once called Petersburg, for the man who first built, the cabin, first built a cabin there named Peter Fleck or Thick, depends on how you pronounce that name. Bendersville was named for Henry Bender. Beglerville was named for William Begler, a governor of Pennsylvania. Now, I found the origin of Mount Holly Springs interesting. Holly was the name given to the gap through the mountains going towards Carlisle because there was a large holly bush or tree there. I hate to be the one that cut that down. 
Arntsville, or John's Pursuit, was named for John Arndt. Heidlersburg was named for John Heidler, but at, at some times they used to call that Starryville as well, named for Michael Starry, who built the first house there. So I also looked at where Idaville came from, and if you didn't know, it used to be called Whitestown, and I could not find anything about why. So I called Doris Hoffman. She's the foremost expert on Idaville, I thought. And she said it's called Whitestown because at the time, all the houses were white. And then I asked her, why Idaville? And she said, at that time, there were a number of women named Ida, including your grandmother? Yeah, including Doris's grandmother. So to me, that's all fascinating. So in our passage this morning, there's a, we're going to be talking about the Tower of Babel. And we're going to see that names play an important part of the story in a couple of different ways. We learned a couple of weeks ago that Babel was part of the kingdom that, that Nimrod founded. Scholars believe that the city of Babel is where the later city of Babylon was also located. Babylon means the gate of the gods. And you may already know that Babel means confusion. We'll also see that there's a conflict between God giving the people their name and the people making a name for themselves. And finally, we'll notice that the name of God is not being held to the higher standard for which it should be. And that, that brings us to the big idea that Moses, the author of Genesis, wants us to understand this morning, which is we must let God be God. So before we dive into this, let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer and ask God for understanding as we study this passage. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to what you want to say to us this morning through your word. Give us supernatural insight from your Holy Spirit. May we learn more about you and allow you to be God in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first point this morning is, is construction, and that's found in Genesis 11, 1 through 5. So you can follow along as I read those verses. This is what God's word says. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now, the first thing we can notice is that the story of the Tower of Babel happens chronologically before the Table of Nations that Pastor Stewart taught two weeks ago in chapter 10. We see the proof of this in chapter 10, verse 5, verse 21 and 31. Verse 5 says this about Jephthah's descendants. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Verse 20, talking about Ham's descendants, says this. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. And verse 31, talking about Shem's descendants, says, These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, and according to their nations. So in chapter 11, the first thing we read is that the whole world still had one language and one common speech. But when we read chapter 10, we see that's already has changed. So, so for some reason, we have a, 
the chronological placement of the chapters has been changed, or it's where God wants us to, to have it. And God does want us to understand, too, some important things from the way that these chapters are ordered. First, he wants us to see the themes of mercy and judgment that are all through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So after Adam and Eve sinned, he clothed them before he banished them from the garden. After Cain killed his brother Abel, God put a mark on him so he would not be killed as he went out of the presence of God. God saves Noah and his family from the flood that was sent to judge the wickedness on the earth. God blesses Ham and his descendants to be fruitful and multiply even after he sins against his father Noah. And this morning we again will see these themes played out as God scatters the people across the face of the earth. He's given them an opportunity to repent and turn back to him. And God continues to show mercy amidst judgment because his blessing to be fruitful and multiply is paramount. Second, God is making a critical point to the first hearers of Genesis and to us today. If the table of nations had come after the Tower of Babel, it would have been seen as a negative continuation of the Tower of Babel story. By putting the Tower of Babel story directly before the genealogy of Peleg, which we'll see next week, and the call of his descendant Abraham, it shows us two things. One, it reminds us that humanity after the flood is as sinful as humanity before the flood. And two, it shows us that God's solution is going to be in his covenant made with Abraham and his chosen people, Israel. God's solution to humanity's sinfulness is the person of Jesus Christ. And this point would not have been made as clearly if the table of nations had come after the Tower of Babel and before the call of Abraham. So in verse 1, we see that the whole world has one language and a common speech, which means they had common vocabulary. This unified the people, making communication and cooperation easier for them. In verse 2, we notice that, they, that the people journeyed east. There are two things to consider here. What does it mean to journey east? I think it reminds us of Adam and Eve and Cain and where they went after they sinned. Genesis 3.24 says this, So he, meaning God, drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of the life. And Genesis 4.16 says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and settled in the land of Nod, and he went east of Eden. Both Adam and Eve and Cain, after their sin, leave the presence of God and go east. So moving east seems to imply that it is away from the presence of the Lord. Our sin, especially unconfessed and unrepentant sin, takes us farther and farther away from the presence of God. Second, we we'll to talk about who is journeying east. You know, is it everyone on earth or is it a smaller group of people? I'll tell you, commentators are split about this, but I don't really think it matters because I don't think it's about the people as much as it's about the people's hearts. But we can know of one person specifically who did go east. And again, Pastor Stewart two weeks ago showed us that Nimrod, the son of Cush, who was one of the sons of Ham, established eight cities, four in the land of Shinar and four in the land of Assyria. One of those cities in the land of Shinar was Babel, so we do know that Nimrod went east, and of course he did not go alone. So the group of people come to the plain of Shinar, they settle there, and they start to build a city and a tower. We're given insight into the building materials that they used there, which were bricks baked thoroughly and tar for mortar. 
And it also states it did not use stone, which, of course, I find interesting, you know, that we're specifically told what they did not use. And I feel we need to go back to what the original hearers would have thought. By the time Moses would have been recounting the book of Genesis to them, they had already built some of the Egyptian pyramids while in slavery or had heard stories from their parents about building them. And if you know anything about pyramids, they were huge stone buildings, and they were not made of brick and tar. So it kind of makes me wonder if Moses and the Israelites are sharing an inside joke here. You know that everyone knows that stone is better than baked bricks, right? It also reminds me of the story of Jesus and the story that Jesus told in the New Testament about building your house on a firm foundation. You know, you're supposed to build on the rock, not on the sand. From the beginning of time, Babel, or Babylon, as it probably became known, was not built on a firm foundation. It was built with brick and mortar, not with stone. And we will see that it was built by people who were not following after God. It was built by people who wanted to follow their own will and not God's will. It was built by people whose foundation was Ham's character and not the character of God. It was built by people who wanted to make a name for themselves and not let God give them their name. It was built by people who did not want to let God be God, but instead wanted to be their own God. Their plan was to build a city with a tower that would reach into heaven. And the reason for building the city and the tower was to make a name for themselves. They felt that by doing this, they would not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, commentators are again split on what kind of tower it was. It was either a tall skyscraper-like tower or a ziggurat, which is a pyramid-like tower or structure. And again, I think about the context. They're not in Israel, but they're in Shinar, which is part of Mesopotamia. In Israel, there were watchtowers, which were to provide an early warning system for invasions from their enemies. In Mesopotamian literature, when they describe building a building whose top will reach into heaven, almost every time it refers to a ziggurat. Ziggurats were solid terrace pyramids made up of successive receding stories or levels, and their main feature was a stairway or ramp that led to its top. You'll see a picture of a ziggurat there. So you see there's stairs or ramps that lead to the top of it. In Mesopotamia, towers had a religious function. At the top was a room for the patron god of the city that included a bed for the god to sleep in and a table filled with food for the god to eat. There would have been a temple next to the ziggurat where the people would have worshipped. The ziggurat was the place where the god would stay, but then he could come down the ramp to interact with the people if their worship pleased him. Two interpretations are that they were building the tower to reach for themselves to reach heaven and be like God, where they were trying to humanize God by saying that he had needs that man could, be, that man could meet. Thus, they were trying to make God in, in their own image. In either case, they were not letting God be God. Now, if it was just a massive skyscraper-like tower, the effect is the same. Once the huge structure was finished, they would get the glory. They would get the accolades for, for their achievement. They would make a name for themselves among the peoples of the earth. Their reputation would be great, but the motivation for doing so would be to honor and glorify themselves, not God. They also seemed concerned with being scattered over the face of the earth. This may have had something to do with wanting to be safe and secure, but they're not willing to rely on God for that safety and security. 
Such a massive imposing structure would give others the impression that they could not be conquered. They could not be dominated. So no matter what the tower was, their motivation for building it and the city was to make a name for themselves. Their motivation was not God-centered, it was self-centered. So one of the questions I want you to think about this morning is, have you ever tried to make a name for yourself? Have you ever tried to ensure your own safety and security? Have you ever, ever done something that was all for your own glory and your own honor? Have you ever tried to ensure your safety and security on your own and leave God totally out of the picture? In Genesis 12, 2, the Lord says to Abraham, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. If Abraham obeyed God's will for his life, God would make Abraham's name great. Abraham did not have to make a name for himself because God would do it for him. And that brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which is to let God make a name for me through obedience to his will for my life and rely on him for my safety and security. Next, we see that God comes down to see the tower and the city. You know, again, I feel that Moses is sharing an inside joke here. The plan was to build a city and a tower to reach into heaven. But God has to come down so he can even see it. Now, of course, we know that God didn't need to come down to see it. But again, I think Moses is making a point here. The builders are called sons of men, which Hamilton says reduces these pretentious human beings to their real size. They are but mere earthlings. For all of Nimrod's and his people's mighty deeds in building what was probably a magnificent city and a massive tower, God was not impressed. But even though God doesn't seem to be impressed, he's not taking the implications of what they're doing lightly. And we see that in our second point this morning, which is confusion. That's found in verses 6 to 9. I'll read those, follow along as I read those, and this is what God's word says. The Lord said, Behold, there are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad, over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God comes down to take a look at this city and this tower that the people have built, and then he goes back to heaven and we see a conversation taking place. Some commentators think that God is talking to the angels here, but in the New American Standard version, the us is capitalized, which seems to refer to the Trinity. We see the same language in Genesis 1.26 that says this. Then God said, let us, there it is, make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We also see that when in scriptures, when God comes down from heaven, it seems to be a prelude to judgment, like we will see with Sodom and Gomorrah. But God never enters into judgment rashly. God declares that because they are one people and have the same language, they can be unified as a community 
and would be able to accomplish any purpose they put their minds to. Those purposes could be for good, or they could be, be for bad, as we see here with the people of Babel. We notice the same kind of conversation happening after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Genesis 3.22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now the idea is that they could do these things, who knows what they could do later. Job 42.2 says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job recognizes that God's purposes are the only ones that should be fulfilled all the time, not man's. If all a man's purposes are fulfilled, then he becomes like God. You know, here, here at Outerville Church, we want to, and we need to be unified. And in that unity, we need a purpose to do what is right. We need to live holy lives by keeping and following God's decrees found in his word. And we need to follow his will and not our own. If we want our church to be relevant in this community, if we want to be able to make disciples who make disciples, we all must covenant together to allow God to give us our name and not try to make a name for ourselves. We must let God be God. <clears throat> so God's judgment plan is decided. He confuses their languages so that they can't communicate with each other, and he scatters them over the, all the earth. Both these things would keep the people from completing the city and the tower. And we see the irony in that by scattering the people, the very thing they wanted to make sure didn't happen is the very thing that God did to them. By confusing their language, the people would not be able to further cooperate in their selfish plans. Their sin was the same sin as in the garden. Their desires became more important than God's desires for themselves, and their, work took, their will took precedence over the doing the will of God. But we continue to see the grace of God as he spares their lives, as he gives them an opportunity to repent and come back to him. Finally, we see the name of the city and how it got its name. Of course, the name of the city is Babel, and it sounds like the Hebrew word meaning confusion. This word also sounds like the Hebrew word for Babylon. As I mentioned earlier, Babylon means the gate of the gods. So I like what Wearsby says. Because of God's judgment, the gate of the gods became the door to confusion. You know, God is not the author of confusion. It says that in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. But in the world, God sometimes uses confusion to humble people and to keep them from uniting against his will. The place was called Babel because it was where God confused the language of the whole earth, causing the people to be scattered over the whole face of the earth. They were no longer unified and of one purpose, going against God's will and pursuing their own way. I think it's telling that in the two post-flood stories, they both involve sin and disgrace, and Ham is directly or indirectly involved in both. I think God wants the Israelites and us to remember that they need to be on guard to not follow the ways of their ungodly neighbors. In the promised land, they would be influenced by the Canaanite culture around them. And then in exile in Babylon and Assyria, they would be influenced by those cultures as well. And again, I don't think it's a coincidence that all three of these peoples are connected to Ham and his descendants. God wanted them to remember who they are. They are a chosen and holy people. They are a royal priesthood. 
They are children of God. And I think that needs, needs to be what we need to be reminded of as well as Christians. We're all those things. And we're in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world. We are to resist the devil and flee from him. Which reminds me of the verse that we memorized back in January, Leviticus 20, 26. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Parts of my conclusion comes from the Walton Commentary. The people of Babel had a distorted view of God and what their relationship to him was to look like. Our story this morning represents a constant movement away from God in all areas of human conduct. Walton asserts that humanity is already morally and socially destitute. And now they're on a path to become theologically destitute as well. Remember, the people of Babel are either trying to be like God but they're diluting God by believing he has needs, and those needs can be met by them. The definition of paganism is a degradation of deity and the view that God is limited and that we can make him do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. We do this when we forget or discount the character of God, the transcendence of God, and the sovereignty of God. We do this when we make God in our own image, The gods that the people of Babel and the Babylonians would have worshipped were capricious, immoral, unethical, unfair, and dishonest. Because man is all those things. What follows is that we don't know what God expects from us because those change like the wind, like man does. But we do follow a God that tells us exactly what he expects and desires from us and what his will for us is. And those, those things have never changed. They never will change. Chapters 9 through 11 show us the continuity of grace, mercy, judgment, and covenant. The first 11 chapters of Genesis shows us the need for covenant. The covenant that God gave to Noah and that he will give to Abraham was his revelation to his people of how they were to live, just like God's word is our revelation for us today. And God's revelation to his people was the first step to his redemption plan for mankind. So what does this mean for us today? You know, we can see the corruption of God's deity all over our society. It's prevalent. I don't think we can miss it unless we have our heads in the sand. God is not treated with the awe, holy fear, and respect that he deserves. God's word is not considered absolute truth in our culture today. We want to set ourselves up as God in our own eyes. We want a God that we can manage. We don't want to let God be God. So there are three ways that we dilute the deity of God today individually and or corporately. The first is by redistributing his power. That is when we rely on other things besides God. Because people rely on what they think has power. It might be money. It might be people. It might be possessions, the government, technology, or even ourselves. In church history, God's power has been redistributed to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and to the saints. In New Age, his power is redistributed to crystals or angels. We also see a pluralistic view of religion where Allah and and Buddha share share the power with Christ, which reminds me of this bumper sticker here. We may use horoscopes or transcendental meditation and not think they're harmful. 
We can all fall into this trap of draining God's omnipotence from him and giving it to something or someone else. Fully relying on God and his power asks us to take risk by letting God be God. We need to step out in faith and allow God to make us uncomfortable for his honor and his glory. This might mean serving in the mission field. It might be, mean serving in the church where our skills and gifts are needed. It might mean raising the level of our giving to where we are totally relying on God for everything that we need. It may mean taking a stand for godliness in a difficult situation in our home or at our work. The second way we dilute the deity of God today is by restricting his autonomy. This is the belief that God is obligated to us, that he owes us something. The people of Babel felt, like, felt that by meeting the needs of the God, such as food, a bed, etc., the gods would be happy and bless them and bring protection and prosperity to them. So what, way, what ways do we feel today that God is obligated to us? I think it speaks to our motivation. What is our motivation for giving our time, our talents, our prayers, our worship and praise to God? You know, we love God because he first loved us. And we need him to have an abundant life, and we need him for salvation. We must not make the mistake that God loves and needs us for the same reasons. The third way we dilute the deity of God is by regulating his power. God's power is an awesome thing. And we dilute it when we try to tap into his power and redirect it for our own purposes and benefits. All power comes from God, and through the Holy Spirit, his power can and will work wonders in our lives. But sometimes we just want to see the physical end result of his power. And we're reluctant to allow his power to cleanse us and purify us spiritually. This is seen in wanting God to give us something without wanting to change our habits. And wanting God to work his changes for us, but not in us. So what is the solution if we have a diluted view of God? We need a renewed vision of his character, his sovereignty, his transcendence, and his power. This renewed vision comes from his self-revelation to us in his word. The Bible will show us the proper view of exactly who God is and what he is like. Our spiritual growth is dependent on developing an increasingly informed understanding of who God is and bringing our whole lives into orbit around him instead of trying to bring God into orbit around us. We must allow God to impact our attitudes, our choices, and our lifestyle and be sincere in wanting him to work in us and through us. It's all about God. It has nothing to do with us. It's about letting God be God. Which brings us to our second and third next steps this morning. <clears throat> the first is to increase my understanding of who God truly is by daily being in his word. And the last next step is to allow God to impact my attitudes choices and lifestyle, and to be sincere in wanting him to work in me and through me. As the praise team comes forward to lead us in a final song, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to have a proper view of who you are. Help us to purpose to be in your word daily. I pray for insight and understanding of your character your sovereignty, your transcendence, and your power. Help us to surrender our attitudes, our choices, and our lifestyles to your will and give us sincere hearts in wanting you to work in and through us. Help us to rely on you for our safety and security. 
and let us be like Abraham and allow you to give us our name in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.